Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Good to have you all here. I am very excited, really, really excited. I got back from New York, and it was a great time doing my podcast at the original Rat Fink Room recreation that Caroline Hirsch did in New York City for the festival. And I've been trying to get this guy, Jonathan Groth, this big macha in the writing and producing world, to sit down with me, a guy that I started doing comedy with. I just share something with you that I remember about Jonathan Groff because I remember certain jokes and I can't always figure out why. And John Groff, every time he would go on stage from what I remember in the beginning, he would just get to the mic and he'd say, I just got back from getting a haircut. And I said to the barber, I said, could you make me look four? <laughs> that just summed it all up. That was what it was all about. And when I saw John perform in the beginning, I was really wondering to myself, is this guy going to have a shot at making it here in Boston? Because Boston, the way it was structured, you're performing at places where the Bruins are in the Stanley Cup and they score a goal and there's cheering and you're thinking to yourself, man, I didn't know that joke was that great a joke. And you're going with all these distractions. It's these comedy clubs that were built into bar rooms, a heavily alcohol-ridden city. And when you went to do a comedy show, they weren't the kind of people who spent a lot of time listening to what the act was. So the high-energy acts were the ones that did really well, the ones that broke out a guitar. And John was a monologist. He would just stand there and plant his feet and do the jokes. And I thought to myself, there's not a good chance this guy's going to make it out of this town alive. And I felt the odds were against him. And as I sat down, because this is the first podcast I'm doing after the election, you could tell the heaviness in John, and he was talking about how the election really depressed a lot of people. 
And there's a correlation, I feel, between Donald Trump winning the election and Jonathan Groff's career. First of all, if Dave Chappelle were to go into a great comedy club right now and do an hour, he would kill and get a standing ovation. And the chances of a comedian who's been doing it one year walking into that club after he went on and doing an hour and blowing him off the stage are slim and none and slim left town. And when I look at Donald Trump, the only thing I say to my kids is this guy was in a situation where everyone hated him. Former presidents weren't voting for him. It was very clear that the three moderators who moderated the debates were not on his side. When he turned on the television, he'd be seeing Beyonce dancing around and Jay-Z and Springsteen. And he was just going out alone. No one believed him. And then women were coming out. You touched me. You molested me. Everything is against this guy. And he still wins. When I first saw John, who was a different kind of personality than Donald Trump, I thought to myself, the odds are against him in this business. When he was coming up in Boston, there were other people who were passing him. But he never stopped believing in himself. And I don't know of anybody that had more obstacles in their way of their goal than Donald Trump did. I think the world is in shock. I think the country's in shock. You know, there's only one person who's not in shock. Him. And when I sit across from John Groff, I know he's self-deprecating. He sends me these emails. I don't know why you want to interview <laughs> me. I'm not really even doing anything. I've failed so many times. But the fact is, I know if I put a true serum in John Groff's veins, I know John believes in himself. And I know John's proud of his work. And I know John knows if the show he's on now were to say, pack up your banker's box with the plant on top and get out, he knows that the chances of him not working again are one in a million. And so if you can just put your head down, believe in yourself, no matter how many obstacles there are where you work, if you and your mind are positive and know you have the ability to do it, I can guarantee you that you're going to have the kind of career that John Groff has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Huh? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Jonathan Groff sitting across from me. Very excited. He's not because I <laughs> tied him to Donald Trump. Thank you so much for all your support, guys. You're amazing. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce Jonathan Groff. And then at the end, we'll set an alarm and we'll all wake up together. Jonathan Groff is a six-time Emmy-nominated writer and showrunner and has created, executive produced, and written over 500 hours of television over his illustrious 25-year career, working on a wide range of shows, including Late Night with Conan O'Brien, Scrubs, Happy Endings, How I Met Your Mother, 
and he is currently serving as showrunner on the ABC hit comedy Blackish, which is odd because he is the whitest man in America. <laughs> Growing up in New Jersey as the son of a preacher, Jonathan Groff became obsessed with comedy from a very early age growing up on iconic TV shows like All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, Saturday Night Live, and Monty Python. Groff was a history major at Brown University in Rhode Island where he ran the college radio station and met his college girlfriend who took him one night to the Improv Comedy Club in L.A. where he saw Dana Carvey, Richard Lewis, and Gilbert Gottfried and he was inspired and knew he needed to go into comedy. After college, Groff performed stand-up for several years, moving from Boston to New York in 1993. While he made a living, he felt that he would never be as good a stand-up as his contemporaries, Louis C.K., Sarah Silverman, and Dave Attell, and transitioned into his first writing job on The Jon Stewart Show in 1993. In 94, Groff wrote for Mark Marin's Short Attention Span Theater, writing on over 175 episodes in only 11 months. In 95, Groff was hired at Late Night with Conan O'Brien, where he spent five seasons as head writer and won the Writers Guild Award for Best Comedy Writing Series in both 97 and 2000. Groff would later reunite with Conan as a co-creator of Andy Barker P.I. for NBC in 2007. It should be noted that relationships, everybody, guess who introduced Jonathan Groff to Conan O'Brien in the show? That would be Louis C.K. Jonathan developed an executive produced animated sitcom Father of the Pride, which earned Groff the 2004 Writers Guild Meltzer Award. He also created... The Jake Effect and was a consultant on Ed and served as a consulting producer on How I Met Your Mother and also executive producer and wrote on the ninth season of Scrubs. Jonathan served as executive producer and showrunner recently of three seasons of Happy Endings and of course that segued into him currently being the executive producer and showrunner on Blackish. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce a guy who was a five-time winner on Jeopardy and won the first round of the 2005 Jeopardy Tournament of Champions. How many people can say that? Please welcome Jonathan Groff. Oh, my God, that's the nicest intro ever. That sounds like a eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to come and do that if something bad happens. That was so kind. Thank you. Well, you know, How long? I've known you forever. Forever. That was un- unbelievable research. I, like, scribbled out a little something, and your, your team is very good because you dug in. You listened to they something somewhere. very good. So Donald Trump. Donald wow. Trump. <laughs> I'm trying to find what actually makes sense about that comparison. But I, I, there's some things... I don't think everything was against Donald Trump. I think the guy had a lot of legs up. So I'll, I won't take issue with some of your theses about Donald Trump. But I will say that, and I, I actually will point out where I do think maybe there's a connection, besides working hard and, and hanging around for a long time in terms of my career, is he's, he was good at figuring out what he wasn't good at at some point in his career. I think he figured out he wasn't actually a great real estate builder and tycoon and was actually very good at branding and has built up this brand which he has traded on and now found this other thing that he's incredible at at some level in his at least in his terms which is reaching a lot of people and 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 speaking feeling making them feel like he's speaking for them and extending his brand so that i would say is something i did mid-career after and you pointed it in your little intro of 
of kind of going like, man, this isn't working completely for me, the stand-up thing. Like, I'm pretty funny. I'm good at it. I'm, I'm good. I'm funny. I, 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 I make audiences laugh, and I go out on the road, and it goes okay. But it felt like I've always said like I was on the in the right house but knocking on the door of the wrong room in terms of my career. And I think when I actually sort of said, like, what are some other things I'm good at? I like writing. I worked with the sketch comedy group in Boston with David Cross and all these guys. Cross comedy. Cross comedy. And I was like a writer for that and a performer in that and helped executive produce that. I'm good at making the team work together. And, and that was David Cross, Jonathan Benjamin, yeah. you. Sam Cedar, uh, Lauren Dombrowski, the late great Lauren Dombrowski, John Ennis, Carrie Prusa, Helene Lantry, Paul Skoslowski, uh, Jim DeCroto, Ed Driscoll, tons of Christino, uh, Carrie Prusa, I mentioned him already. A bunch of really funny people. Um, we're, we're in that together, um, David Waterman. And, um, yeah, we had this big collective and, and, and needed a lot of organization to kind of pull it together. And I was good at, besides, I think, being funny and writing and helping to s- shape it creatively, we needed some, they needed some help in kind of like, how do we, like, get gigs and how do we make this thing go forward and get our name out there and let the SNL scouts know that we're out there. And, you know, um, so, yeah, relationships key there. That was the thing where Barry Crimmins, liked that show a lot and was friendly with David and said something to Stephen Wright. When Stephen was in town, Stephen liked it, talked to his manager, Tim Sarkis. David got a manager out of that. Um, Tim, I got a manager out of that. David got onto the Ben Stiller show because Janine Garofalo sort of said things to Ben Stiller. Um, so it's a lot of that kind of like grassroots relationships is, is a theme. I always talk about it. And I, it sounds like you like to talk about it on this too. Always about relationships. Yeah. Let's go back to the sure. Donald Trump thing for a sure. second. So you are a Democrat and you're pulling for the opposite side. Mm-hmm. How do you explain it? I'll put it in comedy terms. And this is, this is interesting. Uh, ultimately, all the preparation, all the, all the hard work and planning, there is no substitute for talent on some level. And again, let's take Donald Trump's politics out of it and whatever. But I remember <laughs> very explicitly being on stage at some one-nighter in, um, in Lowell, Mass, I think it was. So uh, I remember Anthony Clark was on the bill. He was brand new, and somebody said, like, oh, um, he, should, he should maybe go second or something like that. And I was like, or he should go first, whatever. And I was, like, sort of like, hey, I've been doing it longer. I'm going to go first. I'm going to go a second. Like, uh, he's not going to f- uh, follow me. I'm going to follow him because um, a bigger name, and I've been doing this longer. And I went on after him, and he ki- first of all, he opened, and he killed because he naturally was hilarious and so talented as a performer. And I remember struggling after him, and it was one of those things of like, there's no meritocracy, is my point. There's no substitute for that kind of spark and charisma. So all the 30 years, with all due respect, and I'm a giant fan of Hillary Clinton and her career and everything that she's done, there's no substitute for that lightning in a bottle thing that some people can capture and have an ability to connect. And again, notwithstanding Donald Trump's and my accounts, like m- almost endless list of things that disqualify him in my eyes as a suitable president for our country, there are abilities he has as a person that can connect and 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 uh and so that's where i would say in in in, t- in terms of comedy like you the seniority thing and the who's due and who's whose turn time it is or whose turn it is goes out the window when you're faced with you know white hot connectivity and quote-unquote talent again again I, I say all of this you know caveating it in terms of how i actually feel about what donald trump represents and i think going forward i think you know one of the things that's on everybody is to figure out how to both listen to and not condemn and attack the people who, he, who Donald Trump speaks for 
and yet also hold the line on what is deplorable, honestly, about what a lot of that movement represents and what is going to be hurtful to a lot of people. So I think that's going to be the tricky thing. We're talking about that you know, in the room at Blackish, and how do we do an episode about that? One of the things I like on being on the show is that we try to actually grab stuff like that and say, like, how can we turn this into a conversation on our show that could be entertaining but also maybe enlightening and get other conversations going, maybe even healing. When you saw Donald Trump and he goes on and he does his speech, you are at this heightened level of, I gotta make it happen, I gotta make it happen. And then you get it and you literally go on stage and you're almost subdued. It's like, okay, what's next? Yeah. I wonder, I mean, I, I, I think that's, there, there's, there's gotta be a level of exhaustion. I mean, he worked so hard and these people are 70, you know what I mean? They're not spring chickens. So they're like pushing themselves incredibly hard, lack of sleep. There was an article in the New York Times a few days before the election about how completely exhausted and sleepless he was. I'm sure Hillary was the same. I think he did more appearances than she did though. So he was, she had more surrogates and stuff. He worked really hard. Um, I think there's also, I swear to God, there's an element of like, what? did I do like I don't know if he I swear to God it, it's almost like I won't name the show but there's I know writers who like pitch the show to a network that they're like ah fuck it we'll go and pitch the thing we like and then we'll pitch this thing to pitch another thing and then the network buys the terrible thing and then they make a pilot and you've got to make a pilot now that you hate and you've got to make and then the pilot gets picked up and you've got to make a series that you hate and there's there are examples of this like I won't name the show but there are examples of this and you know they're like what did i do that feeling of like oh shit i have to do this now i swear there's part of that with 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 trump so tell me have you ever pitched a show and you get in and they're saying yeah you know what else you got and then you pitch the second one and it went to pilot it hasn't happened to me that was not me that had that happen to i have the other thing i've done though that's analogous to donald trump a little bit is and you probably know this as having produced shows don't bring anybody into the room to cast at the network that you wouldn't be comfortable with them casting. And I think America has kind of done that or the Republican party. I know, I know there were many people who fought against him and whatever, but like you never, like you, Jeff Zucker back in when I was doing shows at NBC could just go like, I like that guy. And you're like, I don't want that guy. I brought that guy in to make the other guys look good. Are you out of your fucking mind? And they're like, no, we like that guy. And then you're stuck with him. I think that's a little bit maybe what on some level is an analogy here where it's like, be careful who you bring in, be careful who you nominate because America might just vote for him. <laughs> That's happened many times because what happens on these shows is that you want to bring people in to sort of make people look yeah. better and you've set up the order a certain way. But in the end, everybody just turns like E.F. Hutton to listen to what the president of the network says Correct. and whatever he says goes. Yep. So you, you can't bring in, I had that said to me early on and I've tried to always live by, you can't bring in anybody into that room that you wouldn't want in the part on some level believe it or not you think with all the actors and actresses out in hollywood you'd think that somebody like jonathan groff when he's casting a role he'd be like struggling there'd be how am i going to knock down this list of 20 down to five or three but i've never known two or three people no. that are equal there never are and there's n that's 100 percent true and there's also just not as many people who are great at it also, like I thought you were going to say too, that the pool of people you're always shocked. It's like, well, there's there's a million actors out here. Was like, there aren't that many great ones who really, you know, could really make your show pop and really inhabit the part the way you kind of envisioned it. It's a very small list, and usually it is one. Why do you think there's just so few people who can deliver in a room? What is it about the acting profession that's so hard to make it happen? I think. It's partly because, um, especially in comedy, I think there may be some people who could be 
you know, really charismatic and appealing and work in a drama, but the combination of like somebody you want to see on TV who's nice, fun to look at and looks funny or looks appealing or likable or all those things you relatable. And then on top of it are funny and grounded and real. That's a honestly, you know what? I think they have magic. I think there's, there's like the actors are kind of really ac great actors are like, I look at our show and it's like Tracy Ellis Ross and Anthony Anderson, Lawrence Fishburne, they're kind of magical and Jennifer Lewis, they're like, you know, I, I hate to tell them that because then they're, you know, they get big heads and they're hard for writers to contend with on some level. But, uh, you know, there's there's a magic that, that either you have or you don't. That's almost like that thing back when we first started about, like, as a comedian, I was really funny. I didn't have that magic. I wasn't magical, I don't think, on stage. And I think you get a, you get you can get pretty far and you can get through all your high school productions and your college productions as an actor and you can get into the, the theater schools. But when it comes down to, like, who is who has that little bit of special extra something, that combination of funniness and appeal and sexiness or whatever it is you're looking for. And when you're trying to cast lead actors, remember the whole, the whole friend syndrome, which, you know, they hit it out of the park with all those amazing comic and appealing actors that traumatized television forever in terms of casting, because they're, you know, anybody who's, there's so few people who can do that, you know, to the point where I did this show called the Jake effect in 2002 and Jason Bateman, who's magic. He has that thing. They were like, nah, we're not sure when I first, you know, brought him in. Like, ah, he's been in a few of these things. We're not sure. And it's like, he's so much better than everybody I've seen. You have to give him this part. He's magic. And, and it's, it's actually one where, to Jeff Zucker's credit, because he had just taken over as the network president at the time, and he wasn't so familiar with Jason from other projects, because Jason had done so many pilots that hadn't gone and short series and all of this. Um, where he, I remember him holding up his hand to the executive who was starting to go, well, you know, Jason Bateman. He went, stop. Was that guy not great? And that gave him the job. And it was great because he had fresh eyes on it. But so there's, I, I think it's just there's very few people who have that. There's lots of very good actors and really good, but that kind of special thing is rare. It's just like there's a lot of great baseball players, but not everybody can do what Bryce Harper can do. Well, let's use that analogy for a second. You take a pitcher like Andrew Miller. He spends five years with the Red Sox. He never reaches his potential you can see that the guy has something but he never has an era that's under four then he gets traded and he becomes an all-star and then in the world series and the playoffs is one of the most dominant pitchers in history do you see that sometimes where actors come in to audition for your projects and you see the tapes like let's say 10 years ago 15 years ago you see people and you're like hey, listen pal don't quit your day job. And then they come back and you see audition tapes of them and you're like, holy shit, this person is unbelievable now. I think probably there's craft. that There's certainly craft. People work really hard at what they do and they do get better. It also may be just like time and place and in case of an actor, like the role or the thing is written for them or they click with a creator um, where it just all of a sudden the nickel drops. Sometimes it's too, it's like, like I remember a perfect example. There's so many people, and you've had this example, like who came in, and like I remember having a meeting and a reading once with Bradley Cooper for my very first pilot, and I was like, eh, he's good looking. I don't think he's that great. What's Bradley Cooper? You know, I, I, he wouldn't take. You know, I wouldn't be able to reach him if I had 40 more agents <laughs> than I have right now. You know what I mean? It's Bradley Cooper, and and so you just don't know. Like the piece of material that I had him read wasn't maybe that great or great for him. So there is like maybe role that people step into, and maybe Andrew Miller is like hitting his stride of time and place. Um, and he does have that magic, because obviously Bradley Cooper does, so I don't know. I think it's maybe an adjustment, maybe 
it's material maybe and, and then there's also at some point the thing that i think is the hard conversation for all of us to have at some point is like am i am i am i in the right am i knocking on the door of the right room you know what i mean should i be doing something else should i adjust should i go and be a stage actor somewhere and, and be the really best stage actor in you know in um in seattle or something because i'm not getting on tv now you said that to yourself as a stand-up am i knocking on the right room was there a time in your writing career where you looked in the mirror and asked yourself am i knocking on the right door here or should i try to do something else um no not really luckily i've been able to keep working and work with there's always been something that came up that was exciting that gave me a shot and i think you know the one the one nice thing about television is like the the it's such a high churn rate in terms of turnover like you fail and you feel miserable and your pilot didn't get picked up or your series gets canceled but there's not necessarily a stigma to having done that because it's hard to get to any stage in the process so there is an element of like I've always been able to kind of find the next right thing to do I've been very very lucky I mean there's times where it's like you know oh I really like that one and and I and I'm you know and there's you know, some studio relationships I didn't enjoy as much as others when I was there as a writer that made me go like oh is this I don't know if I want to keep doing it with these people. Then somebody else says, well, come over here, and you, you kind of get a rebirth and hit your stride again. That has happened. But I, I, since I've been a writer, I've always felt like I've had enough, you know. The hard thing about being a showrunner is that it's just it's crushingly exhausting. Like, And so that part of me is like, do I have it, do I have it again to like do that again, to climb that mountain again, especially for a first-season show? I love it. I came on to Blackish as a part-time consultant in the first season and Larry Wilmore who's amazing who had helped Kenya get the show started Kenya Barris who created the show um, who runs the show with me I'm not the only showrunner and Corey Nickerson also runs it but first season Larry was leaving and Kenya hadn't run a show before so they wanted somebody to partner with him and I loved the show so far on the working out of it but I was a little bit like this is really hard to, to run a show again and it's not my show per se um, I was a part of it but it wasn't something I created do I want to climb that mountain again um, right away after having just done it for three years at Happy Endings, and the answer was like, well, I love it. I love the show, and I do love my job, but that part of it has made me kind of go like, do I, you know, can I keep doing this forever? Because it's exhausting. A lot of consultants come into Blackish. Yeah. Only one of them got asked to be the executive producer and <laughs> co-showrunner. Well. Why did you get asked, and so many people have come in and out of that show, and are in different positions in the show, yet you were the one who got the call. Well, I think one of my strengths that I do have that I will, won't be that modest about is I, I, I work really well with other people, and I work really well with people, with a creator who has a really strong vision for the show, which is Kenya. So your report card when you were four said, plays well with others. I think so. I think I'm good at a little bit sublimate, sublimating, if that's a word, my own ego uh, about it has to be this way and bringing what I can bring in terms of guidance and experience to somebody like Kenya or in the case of Happy Endings to, some, to David Casp um, who created it um, and saying like I can bring all of this but it's still going to be your show so you don't have to worry that I'm going to the trade off isn't like oh if you're going to have me run this show with you or help you figure out how to run the show and, and, and you know, do that for you early on um, I am not going to, the trade-off isn't going to be like, you're going to have to give me complete creative control and you'll be sort of answering to me. That just doesn't work. I think there's some people who, some people in my position who feel the need to go like, okay, I'll take over and I'll be the showrunner, but the guy who created the show or the woman who created the show is going to have to completely answer to me. It just doesn't, that doesn't work to me because ultimately you create resentment 
and the actors know that the voice that they're responding to is originally is the the creator so you there's an interloper aspect that seems horrible to me that i would never do so it was always you know i think larry had done that well with kenya too so it was kind of taking over basically larry's job when he went on to uh to do his show on Comedy Central that I stepped into. So I think my track record, my, my, the, rep, the reputation I have, I think, is, is somebody who can come in and help you figure it out but isn't going to necessarily take your voice away. And that's hard because at some point I have to go, like, I wouldn't do it that way, but I know you want to do it that way, so we'll chase that. When I interviewed Cindy Shupak, she said she was trying to get her shows going and she'd get them to a certain point, and then they wouldn't go or they got canceled. And she paused and she looked at me and she said, I finally realized that it's okay to be number two. Are you okay with it or are you still in the back of your mind thinking, I'm going to get my show going that I create someday soon? I think I want to do that for sure. But I also really know how hard it is to get a show of any kind up and running and keep it on and to have it people like it and the network support it i've been part of the my own kind of noble failures like andy barker pi that was me and conan but conan wasn't there day to day so it was really my show with his input um and other pilots i've made of my own and i've so i've been down that road too but but it's you know happy endings was an example as is blackish of like um where you kind of do feel like it is part your partly your show um and it's also good and you're, you like it, you know, and you like what's happening and the energy around it. And it's super satisfying in that regard. But that being said, I'd love to do my own thing, for sure. I don't mean to say something that seems like a racist comment, but with as much of a white background as you have, do you sometimes walk into the show and think, how am I supposed to be expected to get the voices of these people in my writing and executive producing when I have never been a part of this world? It's a great question. Honestly, there are definitely are times where it's like, I don't really know this tone right now, and I don't really know exactly how, um, how what the voice of the character is here in this moment or exactly how Dre, for example, would be feeling because I haven't had to feel that way. Kenya Barris is amazing at he's very much into we have a lot of women on our staff we have a lot of white people we have a lot of people of color we have different age range he's really good at knowing what it is that everybody can add to it and i think what he saw in me was like experience good at dealing with the network good storyteller funny all those things can manage a lot of the day-to-day stuff spend a lot of hours in editing and come up with a cut that is going to work for the show um and that's i think what he values and what why it works so well but there's definitely stuff where like i don't know what quite references and stuff that i don't quite know what we're talking about but that's not why i'm there necessarily so i kind of don't sweat it and also i think what i do bring is a curiosity an ability to listen an ability to get excited about the kinds of stories we are telling um and i actually this is you know kenny was trying to figure it out one time too and i was like well I, i weirdly i grew up in the town i was born in in new jersey i was like the only white kid in my second grade and third grade class um, my dad's church was the church I remember him having when I was we moved when I was nine but was predominantly black because the population had changed like kind of while he was the minister at this church so I think there's like kind of built in empathies of feeling almost as an outsider in a way um, my brother wrote a really interesting essay he's a writer too about growing up white in a black neighborhood um, which is kind of gives you an eye opening experience and then I think just I've always been weirdly 
I am honestly the whitest person in the world. I'm happy to admit it, but <laughs> like always been interested in like, you know, I'll read a book by Henry Louis Gates and try to understand, like he wrote a book called Colored People and trying to trace his own roots and, and his racial makeup and stuff has interested me, like kind of on a, you know, I'm just interested in those kinds of things. So I've thought a little bit about it. I haven't experienced it. I'm, you know, that's way beyond anything I could ever say, but I'm curious and I'm open. And so I try to be that way. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilledjfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special I'm going to choose one person randomly and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilledjfk.com, pick up this documentary I guarantee you it will blow you away. Let's go way, way back, way back, if you don't mind. What's your first inspiration to getting into the comedy business? Well, I was obsessed, as you said, I think all like that adolescent boy thing of just becoming obsessed with the sitcoms of that era, Monty Python, sketch comedy, Saturday Night Live, SCTV. My dad is really funny, dry and funny, but we used to watch, I remember watching Monty Python with him when I was probably in eighth grade and just we would just laugh until we were crying, you know, which was really exciting to have that. That's a great, was a great, we didn't bond over everything, but that was something we bonded over. Do you think Monty Python holds up to kids who are in the seventh and eighth grade today? I don't know. It'd be interesting. I know some people have had luck showing like Holy Grail to their kids. 
I don't know whether the timings would be different and that's you know sometimes you watch things from a long time ago and they're just so much slower somebody was one of my favorite movies is the in-laws um alan arkin and um Peter Fox. hilarious but you watch it now and it's really slow in a great way that i can watch but uh, watching that with a young person i don't know whether they would respond to it the same way that being said like you know look at like 30s movie comedies that had that crazy pace you know that are almost like single camera comedy pace those have a, a, a energy to them, so you know, maybe they would. And those are still funny to me. Um, I don't know. I think Monty Python holds up. I'm not sure. I would have to. I would have to ask. I haven't really had my kids sit and watch it with my kids. They love, you know, their huge Thirty Rock and Office. And I have a theory about comedy, which is like when we were kids, when we watched sitcoms, we were watching old Dick Van Dyke, right? And maybe we were watching the stupider shows, all due respect, like, you know, high concept shows like Gilligan's Island and <laughs> F Troop and all of that. But we watched we watched a lot of Dick Van Dyke and then Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family. And we watched adults being funny because adults know how to be funny. And I trust them. And like, there, there's a sort of maturity to being truly funny. And there was this whole thing where kids, they're super served now, like the companies make product for them where they're w getting their comedy cues, I was afraid from, with all due respect, like iCarly or Josh and Drake, and like that was what they were consuming comedy-wise. This is when they were tweens or, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11. And I got really nervous because I watched I Love Lucy and she's a genius. And I watched Mary Tyler Moore and they're geniuses and the writing is genius and they're landmark. And so I was really worried that, that it was, and I think it was unnecessary because eventually, like when my daughter a couple years ago just discovered 30 Rock and then has watched it repeatedly, entire series repeatedly now i have a theory that i've said before the mary tyler moore show and 30 rock are the same show mary is tina fey lou grant is alec baldwin and tracy morgan is ted knight well this is why to speak to our business why it's always frustrating of like uh, to me a little bit as now a grizzled veteran of like you're a grizzled veteran i'm a grizzled veteran where, you, where it's like, we're going to get these new creators who are going to, and I love a new creator, but the idea of like, they're going to reinvent this, and it's like, but it's execution. You want Steve Levitan and Chris Lloyd to execute the basic idea of a modern, fa of a family show. You, and, and so low concept in TV is so good. Like, that's why, you know, 30 Rock, yeah, maybe conceptually it's similar or the same as, as Mary Tyler Moore show, but executed brilliantly. So... That's how that relates to that, I think. I mean, also, it's like Shakespeare, honestly. Like, those were old stories, old myths, old plays that he rewrote, but he's Shakespeare. Take us through something you watch or an album or something that you always look back to and think, God, I always want to be at that level no matter what I do. Well, you know, stand-up-wise, believe it or not, the person that I loved the most and was obsessed with and listened to all the records and memorized them was Richard Pryor, which is, again, hilarious. Like, look at me. But I love, I can't even say the names of some of his famous records, but I was, I got them, I think I got them through the Columbia Records and Tapes Club. I was able to like get <laughs> 11 of them and three of them I got with Richard Pryor albums. Holy shit, I completely forgot about the Columbia Record and Tape. Could you explain to the audience who's too young? This is incredible. For $1.99, you used to be able to get 11 <laughs> records and tapes. And there were always, a lot of times it was like ELO's other album, like not New World Record, but some other ELO album that you hadn't heard of. But you would then get a record a month uh, and have to pay for it and for, unless you shipped it back. So it was kind of a scam to get you to buy full price records on a monthly basis. But for the initial thing for a wide eyed kid was too much not to like bite. So you would send in your dollar ninety nine and buy, get all these 
things, most of which you never listen to. But I think I got a, my first Richard Pryor record through that when I was like 12 or 13. So stand-up-wise, I mean, you know, him talking about Ringworm and him talking about, I mean, it, you know, was was hilarious to me. And, um, and then in television, I don't know, like All in the Family, like Sammy Davis Jr. episode is one of the longest laughs, you know, where he accidentally picks up Sammy Davis in the cab <laughs> and then leaves and then he gets kissed by Sammy Davis Jr. at the end. It's one of the loudest laughs in the history of television. Don't you find it fascinating that you've been tapped by the network in Kenya to do Blackish from a consultant? You're working with almost an exclusively all African American cast. You can say black, I learned. I can? Yeah, you can say black. Buddy Hackett had this thing where he told me once he said he was doing this HBO special. And he's in the middle of the taping, and he's, you know, him and Rickles, they see, and the black guy's in the corner. You don't even know what the joke is, but people are laughing. Right. And some guy stands up, this African-American guy, but he's got his fist in his air, and he said, Mr. Hackett! Mr. Hackett! And Buddy's like, yeah, pal. <laughs> and I can't do the impression. <laughs> he says, I'm not black. I'm African-American. Right. And Buddy just looked down in the middle of the table and said, that's funny, pal. You look black to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I can say black. That's good. Well, I'm not the one to grant permission for you to say black. All I know is that when I say, whenever I say African-American in the room, which is now never, it's always a little bit of like, I get the feeling from the black writers I work with in Kenya is like, you don't really need to say that anymore. <laughs> like, it's been a thing where black has been reclaimed. Um, and so I, I, I do think that it was generational because I know like, in my dad's church, there were older black parishioners who hated that word, and that, that, that they that, and I think that they felt like, you know, they'd moved, they'd been through words that they, and I think that was that kind of thing. I'm not black. I'm African American. Maybe I should just say it this way: you start off, you're yes. in this all black neighborhood yes. almost, yes, and then you're entertainment that you like, Richard Pryor. I know. And then you're in a room full of people who are blackish. It, it's it, it's good we can we can draw that straight line there's a lot of white shit in the other intervening 30 years though let's be honest like you mean working with conan o'brien exactly working working with conan o'brien i am not some standard bearer of white dudes who understand black culture i happen to have i guess some interest that like in retrospect i go like oh yeah i always i honestly loved richard Pryor, and i and i, I yeah he was just he was it for me i love there were other people too but he was one of them um and then it's so funny when I mentioned All in the Family, I guess Sammy Davis Jr. Because of Sammy Davis Jr. too. But there were a million other episodes. There's also, I mean, I loved MASH as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I remember like the, the episode where they're trying to get the shipment of ribs in from Chicago, <laughs> Adam's ribs that they were obsessed with. And the, the sort of like, I love the plottiness of like all of that and the moves in that story. Um, what did you learn most about the shows that you watched that stuck with you in your times when you were writing scripted television that's a great question I, I think it's a lot of times you just the best shows were not jokey and so whenever you're like let's jam and that's having said that I worked on happy endings which was one of the jokiest shows and we really did jam in jokes into those characters mouth and I loved doing that and those actors were so that funny. was one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because when I saw that show and I saw your name on it I'm like is he happy there <laughs> this isn't the John Groff that I know that's hilarious because that show, to me, was sitcom-y. Well, it was very joke-driven. And there was not a lot of, um, you know, there was not that much substance to the stories, really. And we, ha and we had to battle within ourselves a little bit to make sure, like, where's the heart and what are we caring about? And I think we got a little bit carried away with how funny our cast was. And so we leaned into 
the language of it and the and the specificity of what they were talking about in their own kind of arcane way of relating to each other that listen we just did a panel as part of ew pop fest where we read an original episode that we wrote um bunch of the writers got together and you know the room was packed and the place blew up because people loved hearing those actors do that funny stuff that's why blackish has been so interesting because it's in some ways back to for me like you know um talking doing stuff that's about something a little bit that said i also did andy barker pi which was kind of a detective parody and conan is not you know five years of late now with conan o'brien i like big funny comedy stuff but you're right. Like I, I was happy at Happy Endings, but I'm, I've been really happy at Blackish in terms of being able to dig into the characters. Back to your original question, I think it's all about the character. Like w- trying to respect, like not driving toward the joke or being what we call sometimes in the room joke whores. Um, giving up a good joke to go like, yeah, but that kind of undermines the plot point here. And to jam that joke in, it's going to get us off track and not feel organic. Kenny's oftentimes like to talks about, you know, you know, our, our actors are all hilarious, but doing joke jokes is not what is serves Tracy and Anthony best on the show. Attitudes are so much stronger for them. Um, and so, and he's right. You know, we, when we go into the office at Blackish, that's where we write bigger, crazier jokes for the characters that are almost a little bit more, coon- more cartoonish, the ones that, that the characters that Dre works with in that advertising agency. But at home, you really want to stick with what makes sense for the character and trust that the attitudes and the situation will make it funny and sometimes risking not being funny for a little while and, and trusting that the audience cares about the characters enough. I think that's what the best shows did, you know, and th- that's why like, you know, some of the great shows like Frasier, like not a, they were, they had big, big jokes, but Frasier was such a well-defined character. Raymond is one of my favorite shows of all time. And like, you didn't write jokey jokes for that show. I didn't work on the show, but one didn't write jokey jokes for that show. But when Robert walked into a room and something had just happened or something happened when, when he walks in, you know, there was one of the biggest laughs on the show is when they cut to Brad Garrett's character and all you're doing is thinking about what he is thinking. And that makes you laugh. Like, I know exactly what Robert is feeling right now. So if you can create that sympathy or empathy, I guess, with the characters from what they're experiencing in that moment, that's, I think, what a great show does. Well, you know exactly what when when Ar- when Sammy Davis Jr. kisses Archie Bunker, Archie Bunker doesn't say anything. That is hold on Archie's face, but you know everything that he's thinking, and it makes you laugh. Those moments are like if you can get to those moments, it's great. You mentioned Phil Rosenthal when he created Everybody Loves Raymond. He got the call from CAA, his agent. It's like congratulations, Phil. They want to move forward with the pile of the show. They want to bring a guy on to be the executive producer, and you're going to be like a co-executive producer. He said, tell him I'm not doing it. Now, you don't understand, Phil. We have the package and a lot of money and a lot of people involved here. It's okay. It's just to help you. Tell him I quit. Have you ever been in a situation where you sold your first show your manager, your lawyer, everybody's trying to get you the executive producer credit and you're trying to get it forward and then all of a sudden you get the call, hey, we're going forward but your credit is going to be lower and there's going to be somebody above you. And what did you do? That's a really good question. It has never happened to me and I think I was really lucky and I think I came up just in time where that didn't happen because my very first pilot I made was 2001. It was a multicam. Vic Kaplan was on as the sort of you know, non-writing producer, and he helped guide me through the process a lot, but it was a, a show I was writing coming off of Conan, and I did not have that 
EP showrunner person assigned to me. If the thing had gone to series, they may have, but I remember distinctly one of the things that that went well for me, and I was terrified, and my initial script, I tell the story like, you know, I'm <laughs> Carrie Burke, who I love, uh, at, it was at NBC at the time, she's now at Freeform. She bought this script that I wrote, I just had just left Conan, wrote this multicam script about a young couple, you know, figuring their stuff out in New York. She's a real careerist, and he's kind of a floaty guy who doesn't quite know what he wants to do with his life yet. She buys the script, reads the script, and she says, this is a gift. I love this. It's a gift. We're picking it up to, to make a pilot. This is a gift. And then, like, go through the whole process, cast it at the table read. I didn't really change much of the script because, oh, they love it. I don't have to change any of the script. They've heard all the material now and all the auditions for the actors when you bring the actors into test. They've heard tons of the scenes. I really didn't change much at all ahead of time. A couple of writer friends of mine were like, you know, you might want... Nope, they love it. I'm not going to change a thing. It's, it's pretty good. Carrie Burke said it's a gift. And I go to the table read, and it doesn't do well at all. And it was literally like Carrie Burke's like, um, yeah, it's... Um, could, I, could we maybe return the gift? It's kind of tight around <laughs> the neck. You know, like, the sleeves don't really... They're kind of not as long as I thought. You know, literally, like... And, and so what I learned from that was, A, don't believe everybody when they love it. They did love it, but they got tired of it, and they needed it to be better, and I didn't um, know that at the time. So why did they bring in somebody? I did this in 2001, and they didn't give me anybody. I figured it out and brought in people to help me and make the script better, and I ended up having a decent taping and the project came out pretty good and I got through it and I remember Joanne Alfano at the it was at NBC at the time was like wow on tape night she was like wow it looks like you know you, you act like you've done this before and I think I was good at using the staff at Conan and I had experience in sort of managing a bunch of people who were helping me to write something basically and I think maybe if that show had gone to series they would have let me do it that being said like when I actually did get a show on the air which was the show called The Jake Effect I was really lucky in that I had Deanne Helene and Eileen Heisler, even as part-time consultants, they were able to kind of give me some guiding guidance on how to do it. And Chuck Tatham had been around, and I had experienced people um, who helped me out and kind of guided me a little <coughs> bit through it. But I think I was, I think I kind of got in under the wire. Now they just do it, you know, as a rule. And I think you're right. Like, it doesn't always, it can work. I think, you know, in hours, like, Carlton Cuse, I think, probably came in and was paired with Damon. I don't know all the Lindelof. I don't know all of the details, but I think it can work. Um, but I think it's hard. I mean, I think Robert Carlock, you know, Tina Fey, Robert had done a lot of television, so he was able to, and he and Tina were so tight ahead of time. It was a pre-existing relationship, but I think he was able to help her execute um, 30 Rock. Let's talk about the moment that you decided maybe stand-up isn't for me, and you thought... I'm going to try to be a writer. What happened? I will say, and I sort of say that knocking on the door <laughs> analogy, and it's it's pretty true. I mean, there's a little bit more flowing than that. I moved to New York in 93. My girlfriend at the time had moved to Washington, D.C. to work in the Clinton administration. Laura Keitler had, a, had an apartment. She See, it all ties together. It does, time. really. Um, she, Laura Keitler had an apartment that she was moving out of that was real cheap, and so she said, do you want to move to New York? And, and do you want to move into my apartment? I'll sublet it to you. I did. I lived in this little place on 18th Street. How much was that a month? I think it was like 435 a month or something. You had a studio apartment for $435 a month in New York City. In 1993. Very lucky. Very, very lucky. She had moved in with her boyfriend who had written the music to superstar the rupaul song i forget his name i don't think they stayed together anyway um she i owe her a debt of gratitude because i was able to live in new york at the beginning and i of my time there in an affordable place she she kind of let me let me stay there um she um 
so so i i uh what was i saying i was there and um i think i was that summer i was like struggling to like find any gigs i could i was trying to book myself at some colleges and corporate gigs to make some money and i was starting i just gotten past at the comedy cellar and um catch rising star i think it closed but they were reopening and i was going to st- try to do stand up there and then i heard really my first real break john ross who's a comedian not jeffrey ross john ross from san francisco from san francisco had a line on a job at the john stewart show for um Mike uh, Mike Dugan, not the comedian Michael Dugan, but Mike Dugan, who worked at MTV and is a writer and producer. He was the head writer for the John Stewart Show, and jo- uh, John Ross had a uh, had a possibility of applying for a job there. Didn't want to move to New York, so I got uh, I put together a submission for that real quick and got hired. Partly because I knew John a little bit from stand up. He had seen my sketch group too, the cross comedy thing, and liked it. The first time you've ever put a submission pack together, you get a job. And you said you quickly put it together. Yes. I put together, I'll tell you, so I put one together. My friend of mine's wife was working at Letterman as a uh, production designer, art person, and she was really good friends with Rob Burnett. And my friend David was like, Elizabeth's friends with Rob, put together a Letterman submission, and you could maybe get hired at Letterman. And I never put the submission, I never handed it in. I worked on it, but I never handed it in because I just was, I didn't feel it was like a completely organic connection. Like it felt like a weird back door way in. And so this John Stewart connection felt much more like John knows who I am. He thinks I'm funny. He thinks this group I worked in is funny. My buddy John Ross is putting in a word for me. And I repurposed my Letterman material, wrote a bunch of new stuff for John Stewart and got hired at the John Stewart show with that. And John Stewart, you get the gig working with a guy who many people would say is a genius what did he win 13 emmys in 15 years something like that but he fired me after two months <laughs> that's what i want to talk about <laughs> why do you think he fired you that and mtv show was like they're just scrambling to figure out what it was it ended up becoming a syndicated version of itself and ran for a couple of seasons i think john was dealing with the fact that i think he on some level wanted that twelve thirty slot remember that whole thing yeah which was went to conan um, so I think there was a complicated thing there, and they were trying to figure out what that identity of that show was. I also think John, to some extent, and I haven't really talked to him about this. I've talked to Madeline Smithberg, who was his producer. But I think he was looking for a magic bullet of, like, fix my show a little bit from the writer staff. And so he'd been assigned some people that basically MTV Networks said, you're going to hire these people. Then he hired a few of his own people. Tom Hertz was amazing and was there. Um, but he didn't necessarily have the staff that he completely wanted. And I think he knew me, thought I was funny, again, seen my sketch group that I was in with all those guys, and said, he'll be the guy. And then I showed up, and it was really only about an eight-week gig. Um, we made like 20 episodes you know, in the first little batch of shows. I didn't like hit the ground running hard enough. I was kind of figuring out, where do I get my ID, and are we ordering lunch from the deli or the or the Mexican place like I was a little bit like I'd been in an office in a long time coming out of stand-up and sketch comedy and I think I didn't I didn't hit it out of the park I was I didn't get that much stuff on it was a little bit I will say also the people at MTV because like everybody was so young that there's like an element of political stuff that people are nakedly they're not experienced enough to be not nakedly political in a way there. So I always felt like a little bit like everybody was a little bit head gamey because they were trying to figure out their own head game, not on the writing staff, but just some of the other producers. So it was just not, 
I didn't, I didn't, I didn't nail it. But how do you recover from getting hired? Your first submission, you get hired, and in eight weeks, it's the first time you've ever been fired. It was a bummer. We all went out to dinner at Carmine's. John took this writing staff out to Carmine's. I was like, hey, we're all hanging out. It's great. And it's right before Christmas. Like, this is going to be really fun. And then the next day, I went to the office to pick something up because we'd stopped production. We were coming back in like six weeks or something to do more shows. And Mike Dugan says, can I talk to you for a second? And I was like, okay. And he goes, um, yeah, um, you're, you're not coming back for the next batch of shows. And I was like, well, what? And he goes, yeah, we're just going to try something else. And what was really interesting, the next couple people hired were Paul Kozlowski, who was in the sketch group with me, cross comedy. And then I think Ginny DiTullio got hired not long after, probably mostly to focus on monologues. So he was looking for people in my world a little bit, but just didn't think that it clicked. So he was like, I think he, you know, I think he kind of went like, oh yeah, don't renew him. I was floored, you know what I mean? But I kind of probably deserved it because I hadn't produced that much, but it was only eight weeks and I thought like I'm part of the team and but it was a quick turnaround. So I remember being, and I'd signed with Tim Sarkis as a manager in the intervening time, basically. And I remember like wondering if he was like, shit, this client, is he gonna get fired from his first job that he, you know, first job in television? Tell me the first time the roles were reversed. John oh. Groff is an executive producer and somebody comes in and says, hey, you know where the menus are? What's happening? <laughs> Doesn't hit the ground running and you have to call them in the office and say, you're not coming back. I will say this. I don't like, for that reason, I think John a little bit was taking a flyer on me, which means in the business is like, let's try him. I don't love to take flyers on people because even if they know that they're an experiment or a flyer or you're giving them a chance, getting cut out down the road is devastating. So having gone through it, I try to know that if I'm hiring somebody, I really have vetted them and I really want them to be a part of the process. Or I am going to make sure that even if they don't hit every single box on the list, that I value what it is that they contribute and know that like, okay, so like a Conan, there were some writers who like just could not write what we call desk pieces, which are those day in and day out, like funny, things with jokes that you need to do at the top of the show but they were really really funny at writing these weird conceptual pieces that we would do in the middle of the show that gave Late Night with Conan O'Brien a lot of its identity so you realize that like Greg Cohen was a fantastic writer went on to write it King of the Hill one of my favorite writers did some of the most memorable bits hated writing sort of jokey or stuff that was for the top of the show desk piece but if I'd been wanting him to always do that where are your desk piece jokes and been dissatisfied I would and, and fired him as a result I wouldn't have gotten all these other brilliant stuff that helped define my time at Conan but I know you've fired people oh yeah I fired people so the first time you had to fire somebody it was really brutal the first time I fired somebody was a guy with that in mind I really want to vet people I vetted this guy I got people to say I really like him his submission was really funny and he was a bit of a lox at Conan and um, I actually was, I was leaving in five years at Conan. He was the last guy I hired or next to the last guy I hired. And I had to, um, and I was leaving the show. Mike Sweeney was taking over as head writer because I was done five years. I was time to move on and they made a deal with NBC. They wanted me to start developing. And I, I could have probably let the firing of this guy fall in Mike Sweeney's lap. And I didn't do that. So it was really like, it's not fun. Like I had the meeting, sit down, you're not coming back. It isn't really working. Um, it's not fun at all. It was brutal. But I have to say, like, it is also one of those things, once you've done it once, <laughs> you could, you're 
better at it. Like you can, <laughs> it's not like I like it, but I can do it now. Tell us how Conan came about and how it's possible that you passed so many people who were working on the show to become the executive producer and head writer after what seemed like minutes on the show a lot of it okay well first of all the the way i got that break was i after i left john stewart show um i got fired at the john stewart show andrew Steele, who's awesome and a hilarious writer um his uh, went on to work at snl for years his wife kiki Steele, was producing this show called short attention span theater that mark Marin was the host of mark Marin hated the stuff that was being written for him and andrew said hey my wife is producing the show they don't like the writing would you and Mark isn't happy, would you be willing to take a shot at some scripts? So I wrote some, rewrote some sample scripts, knew Mark, obviously, from stand-up, and got hired there, which was a huge break and kind of got me back on my feet after I was only unemployed for like a month. Because now I'm thinking, like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm living in New York, and I'm going to be a writer, which is why the John Stewart thing was such a bummer. Um, and at the end of about a year, that show wasn't going to continue in its form. Um, I had a few people who, have, who are now were at Conan, but mostly Louis C.K., who was a friend, who started there from the beginning. Um, I put together a, a, a submission packet that I was really proud of. I watched the show religiously. Um, I saw its evolution over the first year that it was on, which was, this was 90, September 93 to end of 94. Um, and I just tried to think in that mindset, and it was appealing to me, the stuff Louis was doing. I mean, they did this, I don't remember this hilarious parody of Ken Burns' baseball called Conan. <laughs> it was just landmark, like geniusly spot-on perfect parody. and. I was just loving the stuff they're doing. And Louis and I were, were pretty close friends at the time, so it felt like tapping into his mindset. Um, so I put together a submission packet. Louis pulled a, a, a sketch off the top of the packet and said, okay, you're not hired yet, but we love this sketch and we want to do it. And it was an a cappella group that Andy has found of these four old black guys who sing beautifully, but every song they sing is horribly insulting to Conan. See the running theme? I know! You're right. You're helping me discover threads of my life. Um, so they, they produced this sketch. Louis, I think Marsh McCall helped write some of the music for it. And they produced this sketch before I even got on the air. And I give Carol Liefer a big shout out because she was friendly with Jeff Ross, Conan's producer. The other Jeff Ross. The other Jeff Ross. And she called up supposedly Jeff Ross. Uh, uh, they were just talking and said there was a really funny sketch on Conan the other night. And Jeff Ross was like, oh, yeah, that's a... Some, some writer we're looking at uh, named John Groff. Uh, yeah, I heard he's funny. You know, Louis C.K. is friends with him. Um, so I give, uh, uh, if you know Jeff Ross, that's an amazing impression. Um, <laughs> I, I give, uh, uh, so I give Carol Liefer a shout out for giving me a break. And I think Robert Smigel read the packet and Conan liked the sketch. And mm -hmm. I got that call. I was, there, I was on 8th Avenue, right just south of Madison Square Garden. And I still had to check your answering machine. So I'm at a pay phone in 1990, January of 95. I think I'd just gone to a Knicks game maybe. And I, got out of the game and checked a payphone and got a message that was from Marsh McCall, who was the head writer, saying, do you want to work here? Or call me right away, and do you want to work here? And it was the best phone call I ever got in my life. And how do you go from that to running the show and being the head writer? I think it happened two things. One is, I think I brought a set of skills to it that I developed. I was the general manager of my college radio station, which was getting a lot of really argumentative, opinionated, passionate, articulate, sometimes funny, but in any case, whatever people all working together to do something that they really cared about and to work make something that they really cared about work and that was all volunteers and it was whatever so like making the students my fellow students work together getting them to work together building consensus making sure people are heard 
following up, all of that kind of basic stuff. I was able, I think I was good at it. And then I think I did a lot of that same kind of stuff in, in cross comedy in the sketch group. Um, and, you know, managing a kind of creative staff or helping to manage a creative enterprise. And then it was Marsh, you know, it was lucky. Marsh was leaving. He'd been there for a couple of years since the beginning. It was a very hard show to do five days a week, lots of written material, not, you know, the network wasn't totally sure that it was going to make it when I first got there, although they'd kind of turned the corner at that point, but Conan was still getting 13-week renewals at that point. Um, Marsh left, and I think that Conan and Jeff looked at each other as like, who could be good at this? And even though I was new, I remember Jeff saying, you get it. You just seem to get it. You know, you understand how to, you talk to people, you figure it out, you know, you, you're good at it. You can do this. Do you want to do it? And I was like, scared, but I did it. But I think, I, I think, I think there were other writers who might have been even better writers than me there, but they were maybe not as good at the management side of it or as like, f like were as responsive to that. They were just more focused on writing brilliant, brilliant stuff. When you're a writer and you're new and you get called in the office, not to be fired, but to pass about 27 people in the staff after they've been working there longer than you have and you're given the keys to the kingdom, when you get that gig and you're walking down the hallway in that little commissary and kitchen the next morning, it's a little chilly. It was a little weird, I have to say. But I have to say that everybody, it's a hard job. Let's, by the way, keys to the kingdom. I mean, it's a 30 office on the ninth floor of 30 Rock and it's a late, you know, a late night television show. So it's not exactly... But it was a big deal for me. You're right. It was a big deal, but it wasn't exactly like I was running Apple computer at age 30 or something. Um, I also think that I think, you know, there was only one or a couple other writers who I think were maybe a little bit bothered by it, but I think they kind of got it. I think the other thing I remember specifically, I think when I got the job is that summer we decided to do a show from the circle line, um, an episode of Conan O'Brien from the circle line and it was an enormously pain in the ass undertaking and I was kind of the writer designated to help produce it and it was really really hard and really taxing and I think I helped pull it off I think that was where also where Conan and Jeff were like you know because a lot of the, being the head writer at a show like that is just making sure it's all doable and getting it you know making sure you make the phone calls and produce it and so I think that I had a, done a good job basically helping to produce as a writer this crazy show where we were doing the live show from the boat and Isaac from the love boat was there and we had to convince him to Ted Lang to land whoever to wear the Isaac, you know, waistcoat and mustache. Um, and um, I think I think I'd shown some like grace under fire in a stressful situation helping to produce that show. So that episode. So I think that's the other reason they chose me at that time. There's leaders of men and women, and there's people who are accepting of the role as being the worker bee or the team player, and they love that role. They have no aspirations of leading. They're great in their niche, and they can stay there forever and be happy. When you look at people like that, and some of them are your great friends, who just choose to keep the same gig and do that as opposed to moving forward and pushing forward and trying to have that chance of being able to lead all around this town. What do you think about it when you look at those people? That's a really, that's a, that's 
you know, a really good question. It goes right to the heart of it. I think that there are a lot of people are, writers are, you know, diverse lot in terms of their makeup. And there's some people who are just happier purely being just writing and just being, in the case of a comedy writer, just being funny, just pitching jokes, just helping sort stuff out. And I think they view, maybe they see sometimes all the stuff that attends to um, running a show or even being a number two on a show. And they kind of go like, that's not for me. It's not, they maybe know themselves well enough to know. There's certainly people who've tried it and maybe didn't succeed and end up back in that role and are perceived as people who will always be that way. But I think there's other people who are like, we're very, very lucky to have these jobs. We're very, very lucky to be funny for a living and to sit in a room with other funny people and try to come up with the best joke and the best moment for a character, whether it's a sitcom or a, or a late night show. And I think that they, you know, maybe there's frustration, but there's also a lot of gratitude. I think of like, you know what? So maybe I'm not doing my own thing, but I am um, um, making a decent living, doing something I really love, which I think is kind of the definition of success. Working with people you like on something that you like is kind of all you can ever hope to do and sometimes that thing you like might be something you created and then you have all the uh, accompanying stress of that or it might be something that you're helping somebody else do like I do with on blackish um, with a lot of stress but I also have you know a lot of say in it and participation in it um, and I enjoy that and then sometimes it's you know I've been at how I met your mother I didn't have any management responsibilities because Carter and Craig really ran that show by themselves but I got to be funny, you know, and I really enjoyed that time too and that experience. I was developing other stuff, but I, my time on the show was just come in, show up, write some scripts, pitch some jokes, rewrite, help rewrite, help break stories. And that was satisfying. I'd be interesting though. I don't remember, I will say this, I don't remember my time at How I Met Your Mother when I wasn't in charge as well. So I think there is a part of me that does, that is more suited to the leadership thing in terms of defining my personality because I think as much as I enjoyed how I met my mother, it's a little bit more of a pleasant blur. I don't mean that again, very pleasant. I loved that show and I loved working with everybody there, but uh, it was more uh, that worker B role a little bit didn't stick with me in a way. So ultimately I'm, I'm probably more happy, you know, being in charge or partly in charge. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Okay. And tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Could be one word, could be a sentence, could be a little story. Neil Patrick Harris. Uh, I didn't get to know Neil all that well, but he was one of the things that always struck me about Neil was, um, it, as he clearly was emerging from that show as one of the biggest stars or biggest things on it, always the most prepared at the table read. Always did his homework, always came in and was always funny at a table read that he could have walked through but he demanded a lot of himself, um, and I loved his professionalism in that regard. Jason Siegel. Um, also really, really funny, but Jason was an interesting thing because he was starting to blow up with all this movie stuff, um, um, but super nice guy and very fun to hang around and talk with, maker of fantastic sandwiches backstage, like watching him craft a enormous crafty, Craft Services is the, is the place where people eat, in case you don't know. Um, he would make masterful um, crafty sandwiches and really like call people in to take a look at them. <laughs> Angelina Jolie. Uh, I like her. I've never met her. One of my assistants ran into her at like a adult um, 
bookstore or novelty store and she was like unselfconsciously buying like dildos or something and said she's like just so cool and like buying dildos so i thought that was <laughs> like that's cool she's saying but like not like it was a big deal at all i've done 170 of these shows <laughs> and i've heard the word dildo twice <laughs> and they've been the last two shows i did i did Lisa Lampanelli, and I asked her what her first <laughs> roast joke was, and she said, Paul Schaefer brought her on. She said, seeing your head reminds me I should clean my dildo. <laughs> Have you ever had Crimmins on the show? Yes. Because Crimmins, it was, Brian Kiley and I always marveled and, and were impressed by his ability, his, his vocabulary, and one of his favorite adjectives is dildoic. <laughs> He'll describe, like, you know, Dick Cheney's dildoic, you know, um, foreign policy in Iraq or whatever, so... <laughs> Oh, shit. John Stewart. Uh, brilliantly funny. And so, like, I loved him as a stand-up, and I loved him as a, a host of that show, and I miss him. I wish he hadn't fired me. Tell us the first time you ran into him after you were fired. It was really years. You know what I what I used to do? Okay, here's the real story. <laughs> I didn't run into him for years. I, I, I think I worked with him in Boston as I was being fired doing stand-up. Like, I think I'd done it. I was still doing a little bit of stand-up, and I was still working on the show, and I think I worked with him. I was up in Boston, and I think he was doing a big show at Faneuil Hall, that big comedy connection they had up there. Um, and I think I went to, like, say hello while I was still maybe trying to get my job back or something. So that was kind of awkward. I remember that. Um, but the real funny the funny story is I used to go to this uh, – uh, Jill Lederman, who's the producer of J Jimmy Kimmel, used to have this benefit uh, for God's Love We Deliver, which is a food charity in New York. And you would go and buy dinner – um, and your the proceeds from the dinner would go to the charity, the food kitchen, basically. And I would always run into Madeline Smithberg, who uh, co-created The Daily Show, but had also been the uh, producer of The John Stewart Show, the original, the one I worked on. And I would always torture that now I'm like working at Conan and I'm having a pretty good career. And I'd be like, you fired me, you fired me. And it's like six or seven years in a row until finally around 19, I don't know, 2003 or something or whatever. I was at one of these things and she went, it was John. <laughs> <laughs> she ratted him out. Siegfried and Roy. Oh, my God. Siegfried and Roy. So oh, I did this show for DreamWorks and NBC called Father of the Pride, Animated Lions that worked for Siegfried and Roy. Um, uh, that was a crazy experience, like fascinating. It's hard to put it into a small nutshell, but they were really sweet guys. Um, we had multiple tours of their backstage area in las vegas where the lions and tigers were kept we had numerous uh, chances to go to the show and see them perform we were we had a dinner at roy's house that they hosted the entire writing staff and some of the cast i think at roy's house and we had a lion side dinner there's a lion enclosure in his backyard um and they we had dinner like 20 feet from a lion's enclosure which I th I learned, we learned later that they c that lion, if he felt like it, could have just sprayed us with a stream of hot urine at any moment, which didn't happen. Um, luckily, um, saw the the urns in Roy's bedroom. It was a tour of his house where all the ashes of lions and tigers passed who had been in the show and had gone away, gone to the the great lion preserve in the sky or tiger preserve in the sky. He had the urns, has the urns of all of them. So he was, you know, it was pretty trippy. We were in the house and there was a, I remember there was a string quartet. He hosted the writers in his house and there was a string quartet of musicians 
accompanying us room to room, but we could never figure out how they got from, from one, like we would show up in a room and they were already there waiting for us. And then we'd move into another room and they were still in the room when we left and we'd get to the next room and they were already there. So we felt like there was a secret musician <laughs> system of tunnels to deliver musicians <laughs> to string quartet musicians who would serenade us as we took the tour of Roy's house. Um, but this was a week before he was attacked by the tiger. Like it was so strange. Like we were like, had this show that NBC had spent all these gazillions of dollars on and we thought it might be a big hit. It wasn't, but like Roy was mauled by a tiger. That was a weird phone call to get like a weird reason for a project to implode was like the life, real life corollary to the animated character that you are working, writing dialogue for after 44 years of working with exotic animals was attacked by one of them <laughs> so strange baghead oh my god baghead how do you know about baghead i'm not gonna say that's good research baghead <laughs> was late really late nights at conan o'brien um you get really punchy you're trying to come up with something for the next day and brian rich i believe it was the writer came up with a game where you would put a big paper bag where somebody would put a big paper bag on their head and then walk up to somebody in the writer's room on a couch it was my office actually and it was the the game consisted of do you let somebody hit you on the side of the head while you're wearing a paper bag not knowing when the hit was coming or how hard it would be or how much it would make your ears ring that was the game <laughs> bag head <laughs> How do you win? You, I don't know. It was we, we didn't play it a lot. It wasn't that fun. Rupert Everett. Oh my God, that's a good story. Okay, so I get I I I'm, I'm out um, after nine eleven. Not long after nine eleven, I come to L.A. to to pitch the area that I'm gonna. Um, at nine eleven was a horrible thing, but it was obviously it was uh, it it uh, it slow down development that year and I'm pitching my idea really late and I, I'm in uh, LA in LA to well, I was living in New York at the time I'm in LA to pitch my area to Carrie Burke at NBC and she says okay that sounds interesting I just got off the phone with Rupert Everett and he has an idea for a show and I want you to do it and I'm like oh okay so I said I, I guess I'll explore he wanted to be the British ambassador um to the United States and he described it as a fish out of water story and I was like okay and I did a little research and like well actually the British ambassador to the United States the British embassy in Washington DC is British soil they drive on the left hand side of the road like it is not a fish it's a fish in water story it was a classic <laughs> fish in water story and I was like I, I don't know if I can so I came up with a whole other idea where it was like a, actually kind of like a idea where he ends up as a, a British guy who ends up as an American U.S. congressman because he was living in Britain, met some Hillary Clinton type woman senator who becomes a senator or congressman or something. They, uh, when she was there on a Rhodes scholarship, she dies. They never got divorced. 25 years later, she dies and he finds out that he's eligible to be appointed. He'd gotten U.S. citizenship. He's eligible to be appointed to the U.S. Congress. So basically it was Rupert Everett as a British guy in the U.S. Congress. So I go to his bungalow and pitch this idea to him. Oh, he also had wanted, he's, his other idea for the show was that, well, I have a, um, you know, I, I know this very small, I know this actor who's a, who's a, a little person, um, and I would like to cast her in the show because it'll be hilarious because she'll be like my main assistant, um, uh, my aide, and she's very small and I'm very tall. And I was like, 
okay, that that sounds that sounds amazing. <laughs> um, so I went in and pitched my idea, which did not involve a little person. Um, it was this this congressman idea, and I remember sitting in his him sort of draped across with his tan on this white couch in his bungalow. Mark Platt, the producer, was involved, and I pitched my idea, and he went, "Oh, that's uh, it's quite 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 lovely, actually, uh, quite quite nice." Um, I'd like to do my idea. <laughs> and I remember, and they called ahead and said, do you want lunch? And I said, yeah, get me a turkey sandwich. So I had this uneaten turkey sandwich uh, on the table next to my like folder of papers with the pitch documents and so on. And it was like, this meeting's over. Like it, basically I'd like to do my idea means get the fuck out. And I like had to make that decision of like, as I put my like, pa- you know, put my stuff back in the folder, do I take the turkey sandwich, which is <laughs> uneaten, and skulk out with my turkey sandwich as I've just gotten like removed from the project that I never wanted to do in the first place? I took the sandwich. Oh, <laughs> always take the sandwich would be my advice. <laughs> She's very small, and I'm very tall. Jonah Hill. Oh, uh, I, I know Jonah very, very slightly. I've met him because mostly through Rodney Rothman, who I produced a pilot for. And I remember an NBC, we, we had a tape of him auditioning. It was before he was well-known. This is 2005. It was just before, I think he had just shot the, th- the, the really funny bit that he does in uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin where he's the guy at who comes into Catherine Keener's e- sell your stuff on eBay store. And so he was just in that world, but he wasn't well-known yet. And we, Rodney knew about him, though, and he said, let's record this guy for the best friend character who isn't necessarily a series regular but and actually Seth Rogen ended up doing doing um uh, a favor to Rodney and doing the piece in the doing the character in the in the pilot we made um the best friend to the lead but it was just a one-off character but I remember this this NBC executive going like oh yeah I mean he's he's really funny I mean he's super funny (laughs) but I mean we we can't cast Jonah Hill like just because he was not it's like it was the problem with that network at that time that uh, we talked about the influence of that friends notion of everybody had to be great looking that was still permeating any show with young people in it. Like, well, of course they has to be like Matt, they have to look like Matt Perry or, you know, Matt LeBlanc and like Jonah Hill. They like, no, we couldn't cast Jonah Hill. Really? Let's go one step further with the network. 20th television presidents. <laughs> Well, uh, 20th and now president of Fox, Dana and Gary are... Dana Walden and Gary Newman. They're they're incredible. I I signed up to... When I was working on How I Met Your Mother, I um, was working with them. And some of the executives that I was really excited about working with actually were Quan Fung left and Nikki Weinstock was sort of left too. Both guests on the show as well as Tom Hertz was here. So I was really excited working with those guys. And they were kind of all of a sudden like heading out the door and I think they were moving on or whatever. So I had this idea to pitch an hour that I was going to write with Josh Bicell and John Fenner. And it was kind of, it was called American Feud, working title. But it was basically like Hatfields and McCoys in these two feuding families in like a small southern town. Like my wife's from the south and Josh Bicell has spent, has some family down there, John Fenner as well. So we were interested in like this, like, you know, almost people still fighting the Civil War versus outward looking business development type people, like New South people, family dynamics. And it's a Romeo and Juliet kind of West Side Story romantic comedy, but we wanted to do it as an hour. Um, I think we developed it as a half hour for NBC the year before, but we're going to pitch it now to, to, to through 20th as an hour, and it was going to be called American Feud. It was going to be like rich, soapy, whatever, and it was the day after the Emmys, 
and it's that Emmys are in September. I haven't come up with my half hour pitch yet. You're supposed to come up with your half hour pitch first, but I was really into this hour long idea. And I think it was Nikki or Quan who was like, go for it. Yeah, they'll be interested in hearing it. So I go in to pitch to Dana and Gary the day after the Emmys. So everybody's exhausted. Late afternoon sunlight coming through, hitting Gary Newman <laughs> in his <laughs> eyes as he's sleepy from, you know, night before see him check his watch several times. Josh and John and I have brought in, like there's a lot of different characters. Let's bring in bulletin boards with character names on them uh, and like on index cards and like we'll show them huge, but like lugging these shitty <laughs> bulletin boards into Gary and Dana's office. And Gary's checking his watch or, or sort of like beating back sleep as we talk about it. And the only question he has, the show's called American Food. It's all about how people fight and all this conflict. Good, right? For a drama soap. Gary Newman just goes, <clears throat> uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I just, where's, I'm not seeing it. Where's the conflict? <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, you know, such a network studio thing. And I don't blame him. Like, what are we doing? And then like, I like, that's it. Like, again, we're, this pitch is over. We're walking out with our shitty bulletin <laughs> boards. And I remember Dana Walden just looks at me and she goes, where's my half hour pitch? <laughs> Meaning like, and literally like I got back, got home, sat down. and like, what am I actually going to go out and pitch? Because they were paying me to come up with a half hour so. Uh, and they ended up they ended up liking what I sold um, to, to CBS that year, so that it ended well. But it was definitely like, "What are you doing? We are not paying you for this. Don't waste our time." The day after the Emmys, junior year health class. Oh, this is a. <laughs> I just re, they were on Conan the other day. So Sugar Hill Gang. I'm old, so I grew up in North Jersey. This is going to thing another piece of uh, like connective tissue for you, Guy O'Brien. Master G from Sugar Hill Gang was in my junior year health class, and he was clearly <laughs> the only. We're talking about sex, and he was clearly the only guy who was having a lot of sex already <laughs> at this point. He's like this really handsome, muscular little dude, um, and and everybody else is like not speaking at all from experience or asking questions that were like uh, or just being basically uncomfortable. And Guy O'Brien was like sitting there already, kind of looking way cooler than any of us, <laughs> as only somebody in Sugar Hill Gang can. And uh, was, was uh, yeah, hey. Guy O'Brien, Master G. I didn't figure out who that was until, like, somebody, I figured out later that that's who he was. Like, when he went on, like, three years later, he was in Sugar Hill Gang. Anthony Anderson. Uh, the best number one on a call sheet I've ever worked with. Sorry, some of the other number ones I've ever worked with. But he's such a great leader uh, on our show and will can do anything. Funny, good actor. I love watching him <coughs> do scenes with Lawrence Fishburne. Um on our show as father and son. He's oh. the best. Martha. Martha? That's my wife. My wife of uh, uh, 20 years, 20 plus years. Um, she's fantastic. Been with me. I met her in Boston at a comedy club. Now they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a four-year-old if she's going <laughs> to be with her. The way we actually, okay, so here's, there was a, there was some, okay, here's the story. Some benefit that I did that was like a late night comedy show at a hotel on a snowy night that I believe I end up with Steve Trilling. Remember Steve Trilling, Wendy Trilling? Of course. That's good buddy. So Steve and I, I think, drive back downtown and meet up with a bunch of other comedians. And I supposedly met Martha Blakely Chowning that night, but I don't remember. She was a stagehand on Nonsense at the Charles Playhouse. And she would c came over to the Wilbur Theater. There was a briefly a, show, a, a club called Duck Soup in the basement of the Wilbur Theater. You probably booked people into it. Mm -hmm. um, a great club, actually. And she was had come over from the Charles Playhouse and I think was at the bar at Duck Soup where a lot of comedians were hanging out. And I supposedly met her. I don't really remember that. 
I kind of remember meeting someone that I thought was attractive, but I don't really remember it that well. It was like two o'clock in the morning. So nine months later, 10 months later, I'm in, I get booked to the Providence Comedy Connection with Tony V and Frank Santarelli. Two of the greatest comedians and two of the greatest guys. Two of my best buddies from comedy forever. I mean, I don't talk to them as much as I would like to anymore, but you know, they were a big part of my life. And I drive down with them to this gig in Providence. And there is this woman with her friend Coleman Huff, who's an actor and a writer. And I start talking to her, and Frank and, and, and Tony knew her a little bit from the Charles Playhouse. And I'm smitten right away. And I remember at the end of it, it was the only cool move I ever did, I think it was cool, maybe it was creepy, but it worked, was as we were walking out and we chatted, she watched the show, hit it off with, with Blakely, she was going by right away. She, she had driven with her friend Coleman, and I said to Frank and Tony, guys, I'm gonna go with them, not having said, that I was going to go with them. And they were like, oh, come on. oh yeah, hop in, try with us. So I like just hopped in their car and drove back to Boston. And it was like this kind of bolder than I usually was moved to kind of um, insinuate myself into, into the life of my wife. Last one, Conan O'Brien. Oh man. Um, truthfully, the funniest person I know probably or one of just right up there like insanely brilliantly funny like I I knew a guy who knew him a guy I went to college with knew him slightly socially out here in LA long before I ever did and I went to a college reunion I was talking to this guy Paul oh yeah he goes I remember Conan I used to be a party so he was like pin you back in your seat funny like so funny like when he gets on a roll that you literally are like just like leaning back in your seat, like blown away with how smart and funny he is. And a, I know a great boss, like a great guy to work with. We occasionally like he's edgy as he gets towards showtime. So you don't really want to like, like throw much new stuff at him um, at 445 right before showtime. Um, but it's partly because he just puts a lot of pressure on himself. But it was life changing to work on that show and that sensibility. I think it changed my comic sensibility and opened me up being around, you know, writers like like Brian Rich and Michael Gordon and Dino Samatopoulos and Smigel and and Conan who's um, you know when he wanted to just could just write the best sketch or the best paragraph you know I helped him write occasionally like his Harvard commencement speech that he's well known for in 2000 I think it was and I helped him with some of it and a lot of the writers did but he's his the best jokes in it were like oh those that was Conan's joke Conan I remember when he um we did Andy Barker together and he came to the pilot uh, table read and these other writers who didn't know him were in the room with him and they were really psyched to be in the room with him and he was lying on the floor and he was super tired and he just ended up pitching this joke about like the crusty old detective that Harv Presnell played um, was being described by Tony Hale's character and Tony Hale said, uh, yeah, Lou, Lou Stasiak, kind of a weird guy. I once saw him throw a can of peaches at a dog. And like that was a Conan in a nutshell, like just can of peaches at a dog. Like that's to describe <laughs> a, a crazy old guy. So Conan's, he's brilliant and we're still friends. Your proudest moment in show business. Oh, um, you know what? One of my proudest moments Conan was connected to was he got asked to host a SCTV reunion at the Aspen Comedy Festival in like 97. You might've been there, probably were. And we worked, Conan's a huge SCTV fan and really wanted to do right by them. And in talking to the people in advance, talking to, to Joe and to, um, I forget, I think, I, I talked to almost all of them in advance. I think we got caught on to the fact that there'd been a sort of not super well done 
tribute to them that somewhere maybe if the CBC had done it or some other thing. And so they were a little bit leery of it not being done well. And, and Conan really pushed hard on doing our research, getting all the clips we could get a hand of, writing great questions, thoughtful questions, making sure everybody was represented, that we were giving our proper shout out to John Candy, who was of course not with us and there, and just making sure everybody's contributions in that show were honored from his perspective as a fan, and I was a huge fan too, and so were many of our writers at Conan who helped me on it. And I remember at the end of that, um, talking to um, talking to Martin and um, I think Eugene and Andrea and Catherine, and um, they were all like, that was the best that's ever been done for us in that regard. Like you really hit it out of the park and they were super grateful. And we all, a bunch of us went out to dinner um, and just having them, you know, cause they were tough. I mean, Dave Thomas is tough, you know, he's, he's opinionated and Joe Flaherty is, it was, was complicated. But to feel like we had done right by this group, I think Rick couldn't come because his wife was sick, and John obviously wasn't there, but everybody else was, and it really meant a ton to have those guys kind of go like, thank you for paying your respects to us and acknowledging us in a super thoughtful way. So that was a huge, that was really, really, that's one of my top five things for sure. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Definitely getting fired at John Stewart Show. I asked him, actually... Andy Barker PI was the show I co-created with Conan. It came out the same year as 30 Rock, and we actually got these incredibly glowing reviews, like crazy nice reviews. But some of the reviews even stated, like, doesn't it seem like NBC can't be in this business of making things that are as quirky and interesting as this? This is when they were putting out 30 Rock and Office was on. It was, it was before Parks and Rec. But, and um, the fact that, you know, I remember writing a letter to Kevin Riley, who was running NBC at the time, like, you know, who's now running TBS and TNT, and he will be a guest on the show by the end of this year. I, I remember writing a long email to him and saying, like, you were the one who said first be best, then be first. And I think he was quoting Brandon or Tartikoff or one of the legacy p sort of people of NBC in its heyday. And it, it might have been Brandon or Warren. I'm not sure. But in any case, and I was like, you know, we got this thing was a little bit critical darling, you know, like, and it was a cool show and a lot of funny stuff. It was also, I knew, a niche show, but, like, not having that one go forward was and really get anywhere was disappointing at the time because I felt like oh that being said like with a little bit of distance you go like oh it was kind of a detective parody you know with nobody young and sexy in the cast and it probably was a niche show but at the time it was it was a real disappointment last question what advice would you have for the young person growing up in a black neighborhood <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in the world trying to figure out how to navigate their way through the world and have the kind of career that you have i think it is who you know in this business but not at all who you know whose uncle is the president of paramount or a big agent at, at wme or something like that or or you know a, any kind of real connection like that it's who do you know who you start out with because almost every single one of my little breaks came because you know, John Ross remembered that I was funny and put in a word for me at the John Stewart show or um, Louis C.K. had been a steadfast friend forever and said, this guy is funny and needs a break and will make me look good by me recommending him. So forming those grassroots relationships early on, no matter what you're doing, whether it's your little videos that you're making or your uh, play that you're writing and casting people in or um, a funny newspaper thing that you have going or just build those connection of relationships that you can uh, bring people along when you get a break or they will bring you along when they get a break because you want to surround yourself with people that inspire you or that are inspired by you. 
Jonathan Groff, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a blast. How many comics have come on and done the Barry Katz impression for you? It must be dozens. <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah, but, but that's a pretty great one. It still works. I can still kill with that. You, you know? still do the impression. Everybody still does. <laughs> this is not my bit, but it's the bit that everybody does. Like, hi, John. It's Barry Katz. I got a gig for you in Burlington, Vermont. It's four hours away. The traffic's pretty bad leaving <laughs> town. There's an ice storm that's predicted. It's only for 80 bucks. You got to pick up Mark Rossi. As you know, he's really big these days, so it might be something you want to leave some extra time and get some extra gas. <laughs> and there's construction on I-84, so you better be careful <laughs> about that. It's going to take a while. There's no place to stay. Or actually, there is a place to stay, but it's the owner's son. And and, uh, he steals, so you're not going to want to really stay there anyway. Uh, it le it's you got to decide now because I got somebody else who wants it again. It's eighty bucks. Do you want it? <sighs> yeah, yeah, Barry, I'll take it. Forget it. It's canceled. <laughs> I did not. I think it was. I'm guessing like Chris Zito, maybe or somebody. I, I don't know whose bit that is. <laughs> And I didn't do it justice entirely. I really appreciate you. It was very inspirational. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. My pleasure. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on George Sebra from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Congratulations. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Hot Wangs, December 15th, 2015. Four stars, reads undeniably underrated. It reads great work, BK, great guests, and great advice. Relationships, people, full of holy shit moments. Keep up the good work. All right, thank you so much, Hot Wangs. You are a winner. As always, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Because you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.